me name the textural problem of war and peace. In the opening of volume three, Tolstoy, for the first time in his text, dedicates a whole chapter to a meditation on the actions of men and their significance. This chapter, halfway through the novel, signals a shift to a preoccupation and mode of writing that Tolstoy will conclude his novel with the significance of man's actions, the laws of history, and the ratio of freedom and necessity. These philosophical interludes pose a problem for readers. They are lyrical, interrupting a narrative that, in its scope, is already super hard to keep a handle on. Uh, they are atemporal in a novel uh, that is relentlessly temporal. They are the voice of an invisible author that interrupts and distances the reader from the mind of the author's many characters. They speak with an authoritative mode about history in a work that weaves a literary transformation of historic figures. For over 150 years, readers have asked in light of these passages, what are we to do? Tolstoy himself foregrounds that question when, after attempting to capture a national spirit of 1812 and pointing to its persistence in the failed Decemberist uprising of 1825, he concludes with a critique of historical accounts on the grounds of genre. What are we to do about history that we can neither change nor barely affect when we ourselves are so limited? What should Tolstoy's understanding to a new historical science that, acknowledge, uh, that acknowledges freedom as infinitesimal uh, as an inf excuse me, infinitesimal force lead to. When I proposed the title for my lecture in search of an ending, two things were on my mind. First was, it's a wishful statement uh, about my own lecture. Hopefully I will find something conclusive to say, uh, or at least have a rhetorical rhythm of a conclusion. And the second uh, was the obvious problem of the ending of War and Peace. Uh, I'm not the first person to speak about the lack of an ending in War and Peace. Much better scholars with more specific Tolstoy-focused research have tackled this problem. However, like tutors and seniors here, I have read War and Peace. And the experience of reading War and Peace, especially for the first time, cover to cover, is to get to sections in the epilogue, and actually the entire last half, and experience something like disappointment, maybe coupled with exhaustion actually definitely coupled with exhaustion. Uh, as someone put it to me, War and Peace is amazing, but then Tolstoy goes and ruins it with the ending. I have to say the ending is less disappointing the more I have read of Tolstoy and the more I learn about him, but it is not any more satisfying or any less strange to the project of the novel. And I want us to hold on to how strange the final chapters are. And I say final chapters, but I mean as a culmination of a discourse that Tolstoy has been weaving into the text in the last... 720 pages of the novel, second half. <coughs> um, uh, as uh, Dr. Kay mentioned, I uh, teach Russian um, and largely language, uh, but I also teach culture and literature, and every other year I teach a class on what is known as the golden age of Russian literature or the 19th century of Russian literature, which involves such dignitaries as uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Um, in that class, I show students a lot of pictures. These pictures are portraits, landscapes, sketches, war scenes, religious pieces that all at first blush conform to a 21st uh, century imagination of what is classic and unremarkable. Uh, but with some language and some permission from me to name some weird details, students tend to appreciate that there's a lot uh, in these images that are out of place or unexpected. So I, I brought this one up uh, uh, tonight. This is a portrait of uh, the Empress, excuse me, the Empress Catherine the Great, Catherine II of Russia. She would die in 1796, so this is right at the end of her life. 
And when students look at this, they're like, okay, that's just a lady in a dress with a dog. Cool, what ifs? Uh, but when we sort of compare it to other imperial portraits of this empress, who again would be called the great in her lifetime, we're like, students often respond to, where are, where's her insignia? And all the other pictures that we have seen of her, she has insignia. What is up with this dog? Where did this dog come from? This is the first time we've seen her have this dog. And what is she pointing to back here? And this is actually an obelisk that is in St. Petersburg, but it is not in this garden. And yet, this painter decided to put it in this garden. <clears throat> so I bring this up as an example to remind us that what we are talking about is actually a very strange genre, the genre of the novel. <clears throat> Anyone who's finished Don Quixote, so hopefully a couple more of you, and really anything that we have ever called a novel, what is it? It certainly does not conform to the requirements of beginning, middle, end, and catharsis, as Aristotle laid out in the Poetics. Great novels are always making themselves a little strange, remarkable, and unexpected. One of Tolstoy's lasting legacies in the history of Russian literature is his mastery of a technique that someone at the turn of the century, uh, 20th century, and we know exactly who that someone is, but he's not important right now, named defamiliarization, or making strange, in Russian, astranyinya. Tolstoy does not <laughs> employ this technique just for novelty, but that the reader might appreciate something that he or she did not appreciate before. The technique slows down the reading in its unexpectedness and tests our suspension of disbelief and makes us see it when we might not have. And so I want you to keep this in mind as we discuss the novel tonight. <coughs> Despite being a TAC alumna, I have pursued expertise in a field that may be understood as area studies. Uh, I certainly teach in this mode. This mode often focuses on context provided by the knowledge of Russian language and the cultural backdrop. Uh, so the question has haunted me a bit about what I can provide uh, for a TAC audience. Does that alienate you all, and more importantly, limit a reading of War and Peace, one that you've already done or one that you will do? And I will note that as specialists, myself included, we can use our particular knowledge as kind of a cudgel for those kinds of readings and reduce closed textual readings as naive or worse yet, deem certain readings impossible because they transcend the contextual limitation of an author. And I'm going to try not to do that tonight. And yet, I'm still going to speak in the mode of an area expert. <laughs> um, to avoid making reference to things inaccessible to you all, and I do hope we can have a robust conversation after this. I did want to list, though, for you all, a couple of things that I will bring up in uh, this talk, just to kind of keep in mind as they come up. More of a warning, um, I will talk about Tolstoy's biography. Uh, I try to uh, avoid using the biography to, be, to explain away the text, but I do try to use it to give rhythm to Tolstoy's inquiry about history, war, and family. I will talk to you about two, so this is not quite in order of the slide, but um, I put up some details about Tolstoy's biography um, so that we can kind of keep those in mind. Um, these include um, that he served in the Crimean War, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit. Um, he, served, uh, he served from uh, 1854 to 1855. The war itself is a little bit longer than that. Uh, he wrote War and Peace between 1863 and 1869, so after his, uh, his experience, um, and his efforts to combat and then I will also bring up his efforts to combat poverty in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, and then, of course, talk about his death in 1910. One of the things, um, I, I talked a little bit about the bees in War and Peace tonight. Uh, one of the things that, as I was preparing this lecture, was interesting to think about is that Tolstoy is actually more or less a contemporary with Fob. And so they're looking at very similar, um, actually, 
elements of the world and they're using it for very different ends but it's kind of interesting to think about those men sort of being on the planet at the same time looking at similar things thinking about the ways in which we understand ourselves and uh, the natural world uh, just a couple of facts to keep clear about Russia. Um, one is that we are talking largely when we talk about war and peace about the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Tolstoy breaks this up into 1805 and 1812. Um, 1805 was a loss for uh, the Russian army, and 1812 to 1813 is a victory of the Russian army. And he does this on purpose, that this is the contrast, uh, the, the sort of historical contrast he wants us to pay attention to. Um, additionally, I've already sort of mentioned this, we have at the um, edge of the novel, that is um, at the very sort of end, a um, veiled reference to um, the Decemberist uprising, which would take place in 1825 in December. Um, and uh, this uprising represented um, a combination of um, uh, sort of uh, more uh, wealthy landed gentry and also some very impoverished landed gentry, most of whom had um, or were veterans of the Russian army, um, who when uh, Alexander I died um, and there was a question of who would take over the throne, um, they wanted some say in what the Russian Empire would look like after that. Uh, this turned violent, this uprising was quashed, and many of the participants uh, were either executed or sent to Siberia very famously in Russian culture. Um, and then finally, I will talk about the Crimean War. Um, and the one thing to keep in mind with the Crimean War is that the Crimean War is a costly defeat for the Russian Empire, and it is one that signals a sort of generalized decline of what the empire could be. So there's a big contrast between the pe people of 1812 and the people after the Crimean War um, into the 1860s. Uh, other warning is that I will talk about two of uh, Tolstoy's non-war and peace works because you didn't read enough pages for uh, this. Uh, but hopefully, again, to kind of make the point um, that we are talking about a man who liked to revisit things. Um, so by way of how I came to tackle this lecture, let me tell you two quick stories. Last year, I participated at a conference of European historians in New York State uh, in a roundtable dedicated to how I and others were teaching Russian, the language, the history, the culture, in light of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. A co-panelist succinctly uh, wrapped up that we do, what we do as teachers of Russia, sharing in the heritage of Russian thinkers such as Tolstoy. She said, in my class, we always come back to two questions. What is Russia and what is to be done? These two questions are the focus of my talk tonight. First and foremost, because they are the questions the text of War and Peace posed to us, and second, because Tolstoy's life seemed to come back to those questions that remain only tentatively answered for him. While I'm not making any claims tonight about new discoveries about Tolstoy's life, I do want to introduce parts of his biography because he can serve as a model of liberal education for us. Somewhat ironic, given that Tolstoy's own experience with formal education, uh, like some of us here, he uh, eventually decided that formal education was not for him. So if that's your uh, tra trajectory, uh, you can think of yourself as walking in the footsteps of Tolstoy. Hopefully, unlike Tolstoy, though, we are never told we are not teachable uh, or unable to learn, as his professors at Kazan University told him. One other kind of, um, or a couple other facts. So Kazan University, um, Labachevsky, was the, he was the rector at the time that Tolstoy went to that university, so I don't think any of the seniors yet have gotten to Lebyshevsky, is that right? No, non-Euclidean geometry. Anyway, I promise you, you do get to that. Uh, but it's fun to think of him in his final years as being sort of the Mr. Kane of, Tolstoy, of Tolstoy's, like, 
years that he pretty much drinks his way out of college. Again, I'm not encouraging that, but that's something to think about. Um, and um, the other sort of fun fact, or maybe ironic fact about Kazan University was 40 years later than when Tolstoy, after Tolstoy was kicked out or left. It's, anyway, it was a gentleman's leaving. Uh, but uh, Vladimir Lenin would also be kicked out of the same university. So little town, uh, fun, fun, uh, crazy university. Um, <clears throat> When I say model, as model our sort of liberal education on Tolstoy, I please do not mean uh, to say that Tolstoy was correct about a lot of things, uh, nor should anyone copy Tolstoy's life. His hobbies and interests were vast. Yes, enjoy those vast hobbies, but in some instances, short-lived. Many of his conclusions strike us as repugnant. Uh, those probably won't come up tonight, but who knows. Uh, however, he does model a wonder about the world including obviously language, history, philosophy, Christianity, and psychology, and maybe less obviously geometry, ecology, entomology, farming, and photography. All these interests oftentimes were uneven, but, he kept, uh, but Tolstoy kept returning to the um, second question that I've already mentioned, what is then to be done? This kind of reminds me of St. Augustine's off-sighted summary of the human life, that our hearts are truly restless until they rest in the Lord. Tolstoy's life was a restless one in pursuit of truth that exists beyond simple facts. <clears throat> the other reason I think Tolstoy's biography is worth referencing, uh, referring to tonight complements my promise that we uh, would search for an ending in war and peace, and is something that I discussed with my TAC classmates at our 20th reunion this summer. We were revisiting uh, Plato's Ion uh, in Book 24 of the Iliad together after almost 25 years since we read it as freshmen. And let me promise you something, it just hits different after that much time. Um, Mr. Ferrier, Ms. Reyes asked us uh, as a kind of coda whether we thought the college did right by poetry. Of course, they meant all kinds of um, sort of uh, word art. Literature, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, converse, and so conversation resumed, and we touched on how nothing gets as much as attention as the Iliad and the Odyssey, and argued whether that was fair. Um, as time was running over, uh, one of my classmates pointed out that even if we read things like Don Quixote or the Brothers Karamazov slower, it would not be as meaningful as revisiting the works in a different light of experience and intellectual space. While I can optimistically suggest that many of us here have only read War and Peace for the first time, or have yet to read it for the first time, implying there will be second, third, etc., uh, <laughs> I mean really that Tolstoy offers us a model of intellectual return. I hope to highlight in a few ways how Tolstoy made a habit of returning to ideas and holding them up to a new light of experience. This really is uh, what I hope we can keep from our college education are the questions and foundations of inquiry that will deepen and develop with time. <clears throat> One theme that Tolstoy would return to throughout his life was that of war and whether it was natural. And that is, is this part of what men do? Is this part of what nations do? Despite his admiration for the men and, and women of 1812, Tolstoy balked at romantic notions of war. After leaving university and wasting a little bit of his life, Tolstoy followed his brother into the army and served in the disastrous Russian war effort in Crimea. The Crimean War is often referred to as the first modern war, in part because for the first time, war was brought home from, a distant, uh, sorry, from the distant front in a graphic, authentic, and timely way. 
In Great Britain, William Howard Russell and the other war correspondents broke with the tradition of war writing with its tendency to glorify and valorize the subject to reveal the truth about the miserable conditions, quote, the filth and starvation and deadly stagnation of the camp, thus refusing to, quote, tell lies to make things present to authorities. And by the way, if we know the uh, poem Charge of the Light Brigade um, by Alfred Tennyson, that was actually in response to Russell's uh, report in the Times about the slaughter of the British cavalry in Balaclava. The, Crime, uh, the Crimean War was where war photography was used for the first time. <clears throat> Here we can see an example of the first wave of wartime photography from Roger Fenton. Unlike paintings of the war, which by the way, this uh, is a painting of the same war. Um, <clears throat> unlike paintings of the war, uh, through poetry, or sorry, through photography, we appreciate something entirely different about the war, and that is, even without any human beings in the picture and the bodies uh, uh, of whom Fenton was not, so Fenton was not allowed to photo uh, photograph any of the remains, uh, we can still sort of get at some of the horror and um, the lack of nobility that was experienced in this war. I bring up this comparison for, uh, with photography, sorry, I bring up this comparison to photography for two reasons. The first is that we have some of the earliest photographs of Tolstoy from this period, that is around the time that he served in the Crimean War. And the second I will discuss a bit later is the explicit comparison between photography and Tolstoy's prose in War and Peace. In a moment, we're going to look at photographs of Tolstoy before and after his participation in the war. And I want to present them as a shorthand for us to think about Tolstoy's expectation of war. For the Russians, Tolstoy's voice would dominate their developing imaginations of the Crimean War, and his work from the time reflects his desire to understand war but not valorize it, a theme he returns to in the campaign uh, when uh, telling the story of the campaign of 1812. These photographs that we'll look at in a minute bookend three stories Tolstoy would write about the siege of Sevastopol, and this is the 1854 to 1855 part. Uh, these two uh, the first of these two stories, Sevastopol in December and Sevastopol in May, appeared while the city was still under siege and were read, despite their fictional elements, as dispatches from the front. Tolstoy's name then became associated with truth for the, re for the Russian uh, reading public. The stories are remarkable for a few reasons. For one, they have no central character. Two, they move freely from one character's conscience to another. Last, they incorporate a lot of uncontextualized dialogue, sometimes between the Russian and the French soldiers, when, the, when there was a break in the fighting. The habit of making strange is evident from these early texts of Tolstoy. While narratively innovative and complex, the story's broad incorporation of voices defamiliarizes and makes the reader confront their expectation of development and heroism. And I, I apologize, this is a huge piece of text and I will read it in a moment, but I want to initially apologize for such a huge piece of text. Uh, <clears throat> Tolstoy had a serious problem with the journalistic dispatches from the front. The reader is told immediately when they read Sevastopol in May that these dispatches are unreliable. When one soldier's friend writes, the papers reach us awfully late. Though there are plenty of rumors, one cannot believe them all. For instance, those musical young ladies you know of were saying yesterday that Napoleon III was captured by our Cossacks and sent to St. Petersburg. But you can imagine how much I believe this. This is, of course, completely untrue. There's nothing even remotely similar to, to this that happened in the campaign. Um, <clears throat> and Tolstoy knows it. Uh, the paper's job was only to highlight the, and manufacture positive outcomes for the Russian army. It was used. Um, excuse me, it used fact where it could, but it did so to build a lie of honor, nearly won victory in the Russian position at Sevastopol. Despite journalistic effort, by May 1855, nearly everyone realized that Russia was losing. Sevastopol would fall to the Allies in September, which happened also on Tolstoy's birthday. 
Uh, Tolstoy would make him name, uh, excuse me, sorry. Uh, Tolstoy would make a name for himself, not only as a hero of the battlefield, but as a voice of battle. It would set him on a task uh, to figure out what good art was, uh, sorry, at, excuse me, what art was good at, uh, at getting about the truth, particularly the hard truth of war. In the closing passage uh, of Sevastopol in May, which is what I have up here on the slide, now I'll read to you, um, Tolstoy writes, yes, white flags are hung out from the bastions and trenches, and the flowery veil is filled with dead bodies. The splendid sun sinks into the blue sea, and the blue sea undulates and glitters in the golden rays of the sun. Thousands of people congregate, gaze, talk, and smile at each other. And why do not Christian people who profess the one great law of, of love and self-sacrifice when they behold what they have wrought fall into repentance upon their knees before him who gave them, who, uh, when he gave them life, implanted in the soul of each of them together with a fear of death, a love of the good and the beautiful, and with tears of joy and happiness embrace each other like brothers? No. But it is, to con uh, it is a comfort to think that it was not we who began the war, that we are only defending our country, our fatherland. The white flags have been hauled in, and again the weapons of death and suffering are shrieking. Again innocent blood is shed, and groans and curses are audible. I have now said all that I wish to say at this time, but a heavy thought overmasters me. Perhaps it should not have been said. Perhaps what I have said belongs to one of those evil truths which unconsciously concealed in the soul of each man should not be uttered. Lest they become pernicious, as a cask of wine should not be shaken, lest it thereby be spoiled. Where is the expression of evil which should be avoided? Where is the expression of good which should be imitated in this sketch? Who is the villain? Who is the hero? All are good, all are evil. The hero of my tale, whom I love with the strength of my soul, whom I have tried to set forth in all its beauty, who has always been and always will be most beautiful, is the truth. For those of us who have already read War and Peace, I'm sure we can recognize some of the similarity to the discourse in War, War and Peace, this, const, this, not constant, this sort of juxtaposition of Christian, um, this Christian uh, imperative to love one another, juxtaposed with the death of war, that men are killing men, even though they recognize each other as fellow Christians, is something that Tolstoy will return to. Here, though, the contrast made with a newspaper at the beginning of the story prefigures Tolstoy's arguments against historians and journalists in War and Peace as well. Certainly no one misunderstood the, Sevastop Sev uh, excuse me, the uh, Sevastopol sketches as journalism. Readers from the Emperor down appreciated that these three stories revealed more to them about Russia's involvement in Crimea war than the newspapers, though. Truth seemed to be honored here. Oops. While Tolstoy had recognized the tension of truth and fact before Sevastopol, it was the war that had him focus on the nation, national consequences of writing this way. Even eight years before he began writing War and Peace, Tolstoy de demonstrated the conviction of what should be done. Write so that people cannot ignore the waste and violation of war. In a war, we ask that love and self-sacrifice be used for the death of others. One must tread carefully to use this as the epitome of a noble national project. I want to draw our attention to these two portraits of Tolstoy taken before and after the campaign. So this is Tolstoy as a young soldier. Um, and emphasize Tolstoy's habit of returning to ideas with new experiences and his preoccupation with what should be done. In the early photo earlier photograph, um, we see Tolstoy in his uniform. His cape draws attention to his large epaulets and his casual and perhaps dashing pose. His arms are open, suggesting a carefree attitude. By contrast, 
in the older photograph, or yeah, in the photograph where he himself is older, he revisits the image of himself as a young soldier, now in his uniform that has been stripped down to the bare essentials, while still recognizably being an officer's uniform. So the epaulets are still there. Tolstoy actually dis received a number, a number of commendations and medals in the Crimean campaign, but he does not wear any of them in any of his pictures. His posture is unremarkable. His hands folded on his lap indicate an effort to keep still. Many years later, Vladimir Solovyov would praise Tolstoy for exposing the futility, falsehood, and sad illusion, uh, illusoriness of phenomena. And in these pictures, look together suggests just that. War in the imagination of a young man was a place to prove himself. War in the imagination of a veteran brings discomfort. What was to be done seemed obvious. Remove from the uniform commendations and medals earned in his campaign and indicate wartime heroics as, as are illusions. Like any individual character in the Sevastopol sketches, we witness the heroic uncloaking of Tolstoy himself. Tolstoy would uh, eventually write a treatise called What is to be Done, that is the name, my second question, he eventually does write something that is called that, in the 1880s after his work with the Moscow census. His concern was the urban poverty in Moscow, and his focus was the lack of response to this poverty by, its, by Moscow citizens. He began this work of nonfiction with the encounter uh, with the police who have taken a beggar into custody. Tolstoy asked the police clerk why, uh, um, why that is why the, the uh, beggar was taken into uh, custody, and the clerk said because that is what the authorities commanded. Tolstoy asked this in another way. Is it true that beggars are, forbi are forbidden to ask in Christ's name for alms? And the policeman roused himself, looked up at me, and then did not exactly frown, but seemed to drowse off again. And sitting on the windowsill said, the authorities order it, so that means it's necessary. And he occupied himself again with his notebook. The policeman's unexamined acceptance of the authoritative, uh, of authoritative forces uh, forced the reader to sit down with Tolstoy's question. The reader must to consent continue to sit with it when, as the uh, um, treatise progresses, uh, uh, Tolstoy's friends dismiss his concern for the poor in Moscow's DOS houses as naive um, and a misunderstanding of the nature of the city. Um, after Tolstoy's family become uncomfortable with him, um, we also as readers must witness Tolstoy's uh, appeal for help and also watch as wealthy citizens go about uh, their lives and express uh, outright discomfort with working with Moscow's poor. This question left unanswered, why must the poor be relegated to shame, recalls Tolstoy's inquiry about the historical causes in the second part of the epilogue of War and Peace. And what is to be done, though, uh, critiques similar to those of historiography are leveled now at the city itself. <coughs> Tolstoy's proposed solution in this text is unclear and tinged with a utopic outlook, typical of his post-1880s uh, writing. And just again, maybe one other fact I should have brought up. In 1880, Tolstoy publishes um, his confession, which he promises that he will not write in the same way that he wrote uh, War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Um, ironically enough, the same year that 1886, when this uh, uh, comes out, is the year that he wrote Death of Ivan Ilyich. So he doesn't keep that promise for very long. But nonetheless, he, um, he swore off that kind of writing. Uh, it, it serves as an entry point, that is this little text here, serves as an entry point into the period of Tolstoy's life, that is the last three decades, that are characterized by this man, Lev Nikolaevich, using his renown and his fortune to support social causes like peasant literacy, feeding those affected by the famine of 1891, and 92, helping the Duhabors emigrate to Canada. By the way, the Duhabors are kind of a 
um, old believer sect uh, within Russia who were being persecuted uh, at the, around the 1904 mark. Works like War and Peace cemented Tolstoy's reputation as a wise, ma a wise man who knew better than anyone what Russia was and what could be trusted to diagnose its malaise. By the end of his life in 1910, uh, Tolstoy's advice and opinion would be sought by people as diverse as Anton Chekhov, Maxim Gorky, George Bernard uh, Shaw, and Mahatma Gandhi. Still considered the master of Russian belles lettres, uh, Tolstoy, who had always been interested in questions of education and farming, would gain notoriety from, a diverse, from diverse corners of the world on questions like the use of Esperanto, literacy, nonviolence, the Gospels, and vegetarianism. Tolstoy was one of the first Russians to achieve celebrity status in a way that is recognizable to us in the 21st century. He is immortalized in photographs. There are so many photographs of Tolstoy, more so than there are of Nicholas II. Um, and that includes new color photographs. Again, this is two years before Tolstoy dies. This man, Sergei uh, Parkutin-Gorsky, uh, writes this long appeal to Tolstoy to be asked to use this new technology on Russia's most famous uh, face. Um, and then here we also have ways in which we see Tolstoy's image being used in kind of a funny way. I call these the tiny Tolstoys. Uh, here we have couple of them up here. It's impossible in the version of the photograph I have with us tonight to actually see that they are Tolstoy. But these Tolstoys were stylized photographs that were then like reused in all these publications and they sold them, etc. Anyway, very sort of influencery of Tolstoy. Um, and, and I say that sort of kind of tongue in cheek, but his endorsements had a lot of weight um, and his name and image was used to sell all kinds of goods and ideas. One of the very first videos we have from the Russophone world is of Tolstoy's ad hoc funeral procession. While I didn't uh, bring the video tonight, I will show us uh, some of the um, outtakes from that. Yet Tolstoy remained dissatisfied with his position of what good he could do with his inherited wealth and literary fortune. Infamously, uh, discussions of giving up his rights to his literary works renewed regular conflicts in his marriage. Um, and a few nights before he died, Tolstoy left his estate in secret, explaining to his wife he needed solitude and set off to visit a series of monasteries toward, to, uh, excuse me, toward Novocherkask, which is um, in the south, uh, to, uh, to relatives. He never made it that far. He died in a, at a small train station on November 7th, 1910. His death came in the middle of, uh, of his questions. Even in life, Tolstoy did not do endings very well. All right, now to this. Tolstoy's death and his final efforts to find solitude and more ascetic environment takes me back to the beginning of volume three of War and Peace. There are two sides of each man's life, his personal life, which is more uh, free, the more abstract its interests are, and his elemental life, or as uh, swarm-like, swarm-like life, and this in Russian is ryavayazhizm, and roy in Russian is the word for swarm, uh, where, men, where man inevitably fulfills the bees, uh, sorry, the laws prescribed by him. Man lives consciously for himself, but serves as an unconscious instrument for the achievement of historical, universally human goals. History, that is, the unconscious swarm-like life of mankind, uses every moment of a king's life, though, for its purpose. In his final days, Tolstoy seems to have wanted just to retreat into such a free and abstract personal life. But if we look at uh, stills from how people met his remains as they were transported back, it suggests a meaning of a new kind of king whose life is completely used up by history. And again, these are the outtakes from the video, uh, or again, from those first 
uh, motion pictures that were taken. Here is, um, I know the quality is quite poor, uh, but this is the, um, uh, this is Tolstoy's face. Um, and in Russian um, um, funeral traditions, they have, they carry the, uh, casket as open um, so that you can sort of honor the dead. And then this is uh, the, um, you can see the lid of the casket there. Um, this is the peasants coming to meet the remains uh, of Tolstoy when he is returned to the estate. Um, and this is the banner that they meet him with, and I give a translation here. Lev Nikolaevich, Tolstoy, uh, the memory of your kindness will not die. Uh, uh, that's the wrong translation. Among, it should say, among the orphan peasants of Yasnaya Polyana. And Yasnaya Polyana is the name of his estate. Um, before we go back to the ending, I want to pause on the question of swarm life. Scholars argue about how to understand what Tolstoy means by swarm life. Is it politics in a classical sense or less rigid in its boundaries? And I invite us to take the metaphor as seriously as we can. The swarms suggest bees or wasps at a time of reproduction when new colonies form. The bees in a remarkable act as a group split into two hives. These facts position swarm life as moving towards reproduction and through that a survival of the group. These facts position swarm life, uh, sorry, thinking of it this way recalls uh, Prince Andrei's frustration at being married uh, to his pregnant wife at the beginning of the novel and frames his desire to go to war as a desire to avoid that life, only to find that war too is part of that life. And for people who uh, have not yet read the novel, this is the very beginning of the novel. Prince Andrei is one of our main characters and he has this cute little wife who he is just super annoyed to be in her presence. It's kind of sad. <laughs> Let's assume that swarm life does encompass both war and family. These are, two, these are the two great literary themes that preoccupied Tolstoy throughout his life. Both these themes also provide their own literary ending, a wedding and a victory. And yet Tolstoy does not want to pause that at either of these as an ending. The first part of the epilogue springs us forward past a wedding into new children. And while victory over Napoleon is won, Pierre is clearly doing things in the first part of the epilogue, doing things in St. Petersburg that are worrying his wife, that is seeming to participate in these December circles. Time continues to push forward and Tolstoy does not want to pause it. Tolstoy's refusal to pause this narrative brings me to the point I promised to make earlier, the explicit connection between Tolstoy's, con uh, the explicit connection Tolstoy's contemporaries made between his prose and photography. Writing for an English audience in 1888, soon after the first English translation of War and Peace appeared, Julia Wedgwood warned readers of Tolstoy's new aesthetic and, by extension, new values. Julia Wedgwood is not a name you need to know, uh, just a kind of FYI about her. She was a literary critic, uh, wrote for um, a number of uh, British newspapers at the time. She is also a niece of Charles Darwin. Um, and helped him translate Linnaeus. So again, we can see some crossover in some of the curriculum pieces there. But again, if you never remember Wedgwood, yeah, nobody's gonna uh, sort of fault you for it. But I bring her up so that we have somebody who's reading Tolstoy in his life and taking issue in a similar way that we can sort of take issue with, with Tolstoy. Most of Wedgwood's article centers on a comparison between the photograph and the painting. She attempts, um, and she attempts to sketch a general outline of the evolution of art. She claims that 
the ancient artist had a direct correspondence to sculpture, and that the high Renaissance artist, um, that it, to the artist of the day that she is writing, a strong correspondence to a painter. And that contemporary artists, of which Tolstoy was an example, corresponds to a photographer. These phases, in turn, relate to three epochs of the life of, of the city or the life of the nation expressed in the ancient world. The rise of the private life in Europe, the epoch, sorry, um, yeah, I misquoted there. Uh, these correspond to three epochs um, of the life of a people. That is, the life of the city expressed in the ancient world, number one, the rise of private life in Europe within a nation, and the epoch of disintegration and the rise of in the individual. Wedgwood believes that the change in epochs will be felt on the level of art, but also certain national characteristics are, are more suited to each epoch. Since the contemporary moment is on the cusp of two epochs, Russianness and its advantage in, in its dawning epoch is alien to British sensibilities and their dominance in the waning epoch. To illustrate this, Wedgwood uh, compares War and Peace to Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Thackeray's novel, she claims, um, still supposed a unified nation. Thackeray Wedgery, uh, uh, adopts a point of view proper to a time of which he speaks. Tolstoy, however, per Wedgwood, provides a modern point of view towards the Napoleonic Wars, which describes the disintegration of belief in the nation. Their points uh, of view not only differentiate Thackeray and Tolstoy, but accentuate the dueling epochs. Wedgwood freely admits that she's biased as an English reader. Her aesthetic habits have been formed by reading Shakespeare, and as a moral political being, she feels herself the member of an empire and a nation. She claims that as consequence, she and other English readers would weary of Tolstoy's details. But Tolstoy, as a consequence of being Russian, lacks a concept of nation. He's familiar with an empire whose disintegration appears to be inevitable. Accordingly, as a representative of, this, of his native culture, Tolstoy feels this disintegration naturally. Therefore, Tolstoy is a forerunner of a new kind of photographic prose that no longer recognizes individuals participating in a greater whole. Wedroid really returns us to the question of strangeness in Tolstoy's prose. He never seems to leave out a detail of a scene. When Natasha is preparing, and Natasha, by the way, is the main female character in War and Peace, uh, but when she's preparing for her ball, Tolstoy mentions not just that her skirt is too long, but that the maid tries to fix it, and Natasha pulls a small tear in the skirt. Does this signal deterioration? Perhaps. Wedgwood, of course, is correct. The Russian Empire would deteriorate faster and more dramatically than the British Empire, but does Tolstoy's inquiry as to how delicate, uh, in inquiry as to how delicate an idea of nationhood mean that he is contributing to that rift? Additionally, is this flimsy nation just a Russia problem? So I'm gonna offer my own conclusions, and they are very tentative, so again, I, please take issue with them as needed. Um, but first, I'm gonna suggest that the looseness of the nation that strike Wedgwood as a problem uh, of a modern epoch is not entirely fair claim to make at the uh, looking at the beginning of War and Peace. In the opening scene at Av Anna Pavlovna's soiree, the question of Napoleon is on everyone's mind, and Pierre, in particular, is fixated on the claim uh, to power inherent in uh, Napoleon's authority. And as an aside, um, a couple people throughout the novel call Napoleon an antichrist. And this is important, again, if we look at the end of the novel, uh, wherein Tolstoy is critiquing this idea of a hero-driven history, where that one man really makes a decision on behalf of thousands of men 
uh, who are going to fight and die for this one individual. Um, so again, Napoleon is called an antichrist first by Anna Pavlovna. So we have not the first person calling Napoleon an antichrist, a member of the peasantry, which we would expect who still have this mystical understanding of the world, but a supposedly modern uh, representation or modern representative of uh, St. Petersburg society. <coughs> Pierre wants to argue about the ideas of Napoleon at this party. And this has, um, again, of course, an interesting reversal for Pierre himself, who is, will be the second sort of Petersburg elite to call Napoleon uh, through his experience with uh, masonry, that is Pierre's experience with masonry, um, also a, uh, a, the Antichrist. But the question of political authority is one that the Age of Revolution drew out for everyone. And by the Age of Revolution, I really do mean a kind of European perspective here of what does the French Revolution bring to mind for a lot of people. Um, and I, I kind of try to convince you all that that's an unavoidable question. But I do think the American Revolution is part of this as well. As Tolstoy points out in chapter one of part two of the epilogue, history no longer accepts divine intervention in the, undertaking, in the undertakings of men and national actions as a cause. While Tolstoy is discussing the national achievement of war, the very idea of empire and nation is at play. At the beginning of chapter three of that same epilogue, Tolstoy lays out the causes that historians cite and explain that aside from the Mujik's understanding that the world of God and the devil interfere in man's affairs, the others continue to mistake effects for causes. Since as modern readers, which the, again, this, this idea of revolution has something to do with that, we ourselves are modern readers because we ourselves participate in a um, government that is not, that we do not believe is specifically um, a kind of divine right of kings that reveals the providence in the world. Um, we do not see God's intervention in creating states and the idea of nation is not sufficient. But is this fra frailty of the nation just acutely a Russia problem? This takes us back to the first question, that is, what is Russia? And one that I may be really poorly actually able to answer for you. Russia is my job. That's all I think about is Russia. War and Peace is often cited as a foremost example of answering the question, what is Russia? Orlando, <coughs> excuse me, Orlando Feige's uh, broad work on the Russian cultural history, that is Natasha's dance, that's the name of the work, um, and you'll see why I bring it up in, in just a second, takes its name from a, a passage in War and Peace, and he models his multi-century inquiry, that is, this, this history that he tells starts in the, um, in the 18th century and goes into the 20th century. Yet he uses Tolstoy as a model for that inquiry. And he, like, um, just as Tolstoy was using the generation of 1812 to make these inquiries about history. Of course, Natasha has a couple famous dances. So what is this dance um, in the novel? And perhaps the one that first comes to mind is the one where she first dances with Prince Andre. But per Feige's, that is not the dance that is most important for Tolstoy. Rather, it's Natasha's dance at her uncle's. <coughs> where, how, and when had this little countess brought up by an emigre French woman sucked the spirit in from the Russian air she breathed? Where had she gotten these ways which she would have long supplanted by the, uh, which should have long been supplanted by the pas de chal? Yet that spirit and these ways were those very inimitable, unstudied Russian ones which the uncle expected of her. She did exactly right and so perfectly 
precisely that Anisya Fyodorovna, who, had, uh, who at once handed Natasha the kerchief she needed for it, wept through her laughter, looking at this slender, graceful countess brought up in silk and velvet, so foreign to her, who was able to understand everything that was in Anisya and Anisya's father, and in her auntie, and in her mother, and in every Russian. Tolstoy draws our attention to Natasha, ever energetic and sincere, adopting this country dance, not because she is a great dancer, but in spite of it. And by the way, Natasha is a great dancer. He tells us that over and over again. And yet, it, that is a problem for learning this dance. Natasha or, Tolstoy states that Natasha's rearing and education is an impediment. He suggests that artifice is a problem, and she is somehow able to transcend through her characteristic openness and receptivity this problem. What does she access, though, through this? Tolstoy rigorously pushes war and peace on, the, uh, on a forward timeline. There are no narrative flashbacks except those that are tethered to actually uh, seem reasonable in the memories uh, and characters' imaginations. There might be one or two exceptions in a dream. However, this dance seems to transcend time. Natasha is able to understand not just Anisia, that is, the peasant woman who is sitting there watching uh, uh, watching her dance, but also her entire family, that is Anisia's entire family. Likewise, in the campaign of 1812, Tolstoy writes as he reflects on the greatness of Kutuzov. Kutuzov, by the way, is the commander of the Russian forces in the campaign of 1812. He's an interestingly drawn character in War and Peace. Kutuzov knew, not by reason or science, but all uh, his Russian being, he knew and felt what every Russian soldier felt, that the French were defeated and that the foe was fleeing and had to be driven out. But along with that, he felt together with his soldiers all the difficulties of this march, of its unheard of swiftness at such a time of year. And by the way, this comes out sort of in the last quarter of the novel. Um, and Kutuzov is always being contrasted with other commanders. And they're often called the German commanders, but German and Russian is often given that it, it just means foreign, that the people that do not speak the native language here. Um, and Kutuzov is the one who can see and pay attention to the soldiers. Both Kutuzov and Natasha share this capacity to tap into something Russian. No one thing in particular, though, is Russian. Not the dance, not the army, not even Moscow. But it and that is Moscow burns in the novel, uh, and that is very important to um, the memory of the War of 1812. But it is at least for Tolstoy and its people. Oh, that is, it, at least, it is at least the people for Tolstoy. To help go back to the central image of the swarm, uh, <coughs> uh, abandoned Moscow is compared to a queenless empty hive. And uh, the, the way he describes this in this chapter here is, is a kind of interesting, um, specific type of beehive. It is this beehive that looks like little houses here, so obviously the metaphor maybe makes a little bit more sense than the more rectangular beehives that we might be um, uh, uh, sort of imagine here. Um, but one of the other things is it also makes sense when he talks about the beekeeper checking two parts of the hive, because there are two entry points into these hives. There's a lower uh, and an upper. These hives, however, you cannot pull out like you can um, in sort of rectangular hives. You cannot pull out individual um, sort of parts of the hive. Um, and these are kind of uh, closer to what peasants who um, collected honey out of the trees would have used um, than the more sort of rectangular ones. And actually, in, in other works, Tolstoy calls them American beehives. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, the dance, Moscow, the army provide artifacts and impressions of a national consciousness and a shared sensibility. And that from these effects, Tolstoy ex excavates from his 1812 men 
and reclaims for his current generation a broad community with the Russian peasantry. That seems to be what is Russia for Tolstoy. But that all seems to suggest that, in fact, this text is limited to Russia. But I'm still going to make an argument for why I don't think it has to be. Tolstoy and his method for returning to ideas in his writing, and we can therefore assume in his life, he would return to many stories about war. He would write at least one more historical novella, and more intensely though, he would return to stories about family and about self. He never came back, as far as I can tell, to these large questions of the laws of history, seeming instead to choose more to focus on the calculus of freedom. And again, for people who have not yet read the novel, the calculus of freedom is the last metaphor he gives us about uh, freedom, calculus. Again, I'm sure you all are excited to hear that as well. Uh, <clears throat> um, in my opinion, actually, uh, it is he would very much agree with Julia Wedgwood that the idea of the nation was disintegrating. And that was a disa disastrous outcome for Tolstoy. But I think he would extend that problem to, commu uh, to communities more general, and eventually in his writing, even families. And this is where I, I would be really curious to hear what people who read Death of Ivan Ilyich, which I understood was All School Seminar last year, is that fair? Uh, so have to kind of think about this. How are we coming to questions of freedom in that text? And by the way, like I said, that's written the same year as What is to be Done. The question what is to be done animated Tolstoy's imagination, and it can animate ours as well. Tolstoy sought to understand why Russia acted as a nation in 1812, but he came to a rather vague conclusion about why thousands of men, and more like millions of people, coalesced around a single task of defeating Napoleon. As he sought to understand what forces bind the swarm of, the, of men in the enterprise of an empire or nation, he points to the importance of understanding not that from the top down, but from its smallest units. For him, this was the peasant and God's folk. For us, that can be our neighbor, our families, and community. Even if we reject Tolstoy's metaphor of the calculus of freedom, it remains vital for us to think about what it means to act as a family, a community, and a nation.